I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Dressed is an exhilarating book. Moves from a yellow Chongsam. Um, some of you in the room may be too young to know what such a thing is, but, <laughs> well, of course, you know, but um, in the 1949 film, Love in the Mood for Love, to, at the end, Paddington Bear sec his suitcase on Paddington Station. And on the way, it explores the meaning of frocks, of suits, of shoes, and handbags. And it looks at their secret life. This is the subtitle of the book, The Secret Life of Clothes, um, of, what we, of everything that we wear. And Shahida evokes most finely textures, fur, feathers, silk. And she examines feelings. She attaches to these material, this, these material objects the range of pleasures this is a book that's very much about pleasure, about seeking pleasure. And anxieties, of course, the embarrassment, the attachments, the de detachments um, that clothes arouse. And it's interspersed with startling glimpses of autobiographical moments in Shahida's life, a kind of secret beneath the secrets. Now, they, it, she, she visits throughout films, um, from Hitchcock, Fred Astaire, Tarantino. She reads all kinds of writers. There's an excellent passage on Jeeves um, attempting to get um, Bertie look, <laughs> looking properly fitted out. Um, um, sensitive readings of Wolf, of Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It's really a feast of a book, and it's unclassifiable. I mean, it's, it's cultural studies, broadly speaking. It's film theory. It's uh, psychoanalysis. It's literature studies. So... It, it's, it's above all, I think, the supreme example of the new kind of essay, um, exploratory, reflective, um, full of the a personal energy of Shahida herself, but also a wide knowledge that is accessible for us all. So, Shahida, how did you think of writing this book? <laughs> I'm quite overwhelmed hearing you talk about it. It's that very strange... It's a very strange thing, spending a long time working on a book and then seeing it and seeing people pick it up and then people like Marina read it. Because you feel like you've written it in your own personal hieroglyphics and then somebody else reads it very precisely. 
sometimes in unexpected ways, but hopefully in the ways that you intended. So your secrets are not so secret anymore. So that's really wonderful to hear you say that. I, I, it's so hard to answer that question of where the book came from. I've sort of started to reverse engineer it in my head. I think you know from writing books that books come from all over, from all sorts of experiences and thoughts and trajectories in our life. And now looking back at this book, I can see several different routes into it. One's a very prosaic one, which is that I was working in philosophy and I wanted to write quite a hard philosophy book. I wanted to use um, lots of stuff I knew and read and had thought about that I thought was profound and interesting. And I wanted to lend it to something that... I wanted to write a, kind of a, a phenomenological book, about a book about the experience of everyday life. That's the kind of philosophy I like. So I wanted to write a book about everyday life that people would understand, would read, and would be able to see and feel my world. That was the first part. But now looking back, I think that um, it was almost inevitable, this book. I've spent my whole life... I'm, I don't think I'm a particularly snazzy dresser. Lots of people who know me will have seen me with pen <laughs> over my face and um, holes and jumpers. But I, I am obsessed with other people's clothes. Um, I know, <laughs> like this incredible jewel-like dress that Marina wears. Um, and I have it's a tribute to you. I, I felt I had to dress <laughs> carefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yes, I know this is the terrible error I made writing the book that I didn't think that I would have to think about what I wear every day afterwards, um, which I do now. Um, but I have always thought about clothes, and I think it's something to do. People who know me will know I have a very I have a very peculiar memory, and I remember lots of things that you probably ought not to remember, but I remember. But my earliest memories are of um, wearing, I have very early memories, being about two and pulling on a pair of floral pants to swim in a paddling pool. And I have memories of my parents buying things for me. I was the first girl after three boys, a seven-year gap between us. My parents had just come to this country and my mother wore saris and sewer camises, and she couldn't find the things that she wore here. But she had this baby to dress, and a girl for the first time. And so I had the most amazing dresses, like Carmen Miranda rockabilly <laughs> dresses with colored fruit on it, uh, pink sailor dresses with collars and jangling gold but Just, I had amazing clothes as a child. And I have a form of synesthesia that means that I often associate oh. color and texture with people. If I have met you, I can see people I know really well. I will often remember the very first thing you were wearing, the thing you were wearing the very first time we met. Hmm? I will remember it. My editor B, she was wearing harem pants. They were amazing. <laughs> um, so my memory is very peculiar. Mm. And so it felt inevitable that if I was going to write a book about everyday experiences, it would be about the particular way that I experience the world, which happens to be through texture and colour mm. and the amazing things that people often wear. <laughs> Do you want to read that passage to give us a sense, sure. of, a sense of, of the book? I was going to read from uh, quite early on. Mm. So, yes, this is about the secret life of clothes. <laughs> okay. So this is the introduction. Do clothes speak? They express us, of course, indicating affiliations and identities. And the word text itself retains a memory of a lost materiality connected to textile and deriving from the Latin text area to weave. 
We read our lives into the things we wear, but they too can seem in possession of their own life. How could we not believe there to be some animating principle at work in the crisp, stiffened transparency of organza, whose bridal layering accomplishes a strength that belies its fineness, or the cobweb softness of gossamer, whose name ridiculously conjoins the Middle English for goose and summer? Isn't there a hint of coquettish nonchalance in chiffon, romance in voile? When we choose to read our clothes, our task is to find their precise and equitable translation in language. This is a challenge because dress in its fullest range intimates something of the diversity and delicacy of the lived experience to which words only falteringly reach. In dress, we impart some mysterious thought, quality, mood or aspect only inadequately conveyed by any other means. And yet at times our clothes seem also to solicit language. Think only of the t-shirt in that precise and rare shade that brings unbidden to your mouth the shape of the word turquoise. <laughs> the belt on the beige buttoned mid-length jacket that makes it exactly a trench coat and nothing else. Or the soft smooth warmth against our skin that is brushed cotton. The things we wear can elude our words, bringing language up close to its limits, but at other times they seem almost to be awaiting our articulation, the exact arrangement of words by which something particular, something known and felt, might finally make itself understood. This is why, if you love language, you might find that you love clothes too. Both possess the capacity for exactitude and evasion, revealing us as we are, and protecting us from too penetrating a gaze. For this reason, what I write here is given as an act of undeniable disclosure. How could I tell you of the life of clothes if I were not also to tell you of the life of the wearer? And if I cannot take you to my barest heart, if I keep you at arm's length, then remember that in clothes we hide too, cloaking the most naked truths. This book comes only from the conviction that there may be in clothes that which language cannot contain, and something else in language too that might realise the life of clothes that is otherwise left unspoken. We think we dress for decency's sake, but what our clothes conceal is an indecent truth, difficult to bear and harder to confront with every passing moment, that we are embodied and yet fragile, unknowable to others just as they are to us. Our clothes, in all their joy, range and colour, brightly ward off death. We wear them valiantly, presenting an image of how we might wish to be remembered, dressed in place of the bare bones we must ultimately become. Clothes tell our stories, some that we would rather not tell, others that we hardly know ourselves. The clothes of those we love tell us how little we have known them, how failed we are by the brute fact of our mortality, and how insufficiently love shields us from this. And yet how little we think of it in the things we ourselves wear. Our garments are unequal to the ways in which we are loved. But all that language cannot articulate, the life of the mind, the vagaries of the body, is there, ready to be read, waiting to be worn. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. I, think, I think you can hear in that very clearly how, you know, you, you, I think your first book was on Keats. Yes. Yes, and there's, and Keats, of course, the great writer, the great poet of color and texture yeah. and sensuousness. And, and I think the idea of the laboratory of language and the workshop of the, of the clo of clothes was also present in that passage. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about that, about this, this interest in craftsmanship and 
and actually make, make how the, you're very precise, for example, on how shoes, the vocabulary of shoes, I learned many words from... Oh, really? Yes, yes, like shank. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, she has a shank. Yeah. Yes, yes, uh, the, on, on, on a shoe. And how there's, there's such an architecture that goes into it. And you have quite a long passage of, of analysis of sports shoes and their development. Yes. So perhaps you could elaborate a bit on this interest in, in craft of the clothes. Yes. I haven't, thank you, that's such a good question. I haven't thought about... That writing a book, writing as I do, would, was a bit like mm. assembling or making or crafting a garment. My agent said to me afterwards, There's, don't you think there is a connection between the really precise ways you're trying to articulate mm. something and the precise ways that clothes work and are made? Um, and that's when I thought, yes, if you love language, maybe you love clothes too, which is my experience uh, with lots of my friends. Um, but uh, the, I became really interested in the technical stuff, Partic shoes, the ch shoes chapter in particular, because when I started writing that, I kept thinking about the mountain of shoes that my parents have in their hallway. I don't know if you have that, like a <laughs> cupboard, like, and how disrespectful we are in shoes, just literally walking in shit, walking around, you know, scuffing them on. I've got like a wonderful pair of suede boots that I scuffed on the escalator, and I'm so furious at myself. Like, we, we, and the way we take our shoes off, when you press one foot down on the back, that's how you, when you go home to your wearing trainers, you'll squash your, the back of one foot with the trainer of another. But we're really disrespectful of our shoes and yet the sh our shoes are everything right they enable the diversity of our species if you're a ballet dancer if you're an athlete um, if you're um, a mountain climber I was a nobody ever believes me but I was an ice skater as a young woman I skated so I had to think about my blades and how to carry them in our shoes allow us to do all sorts of things and they enable our potential and so I started to think about how um, performance shoes mm -hmm. are a kind of architecture, they're engineered. And in fact, Zaha Hadid, uh, the Iranian architect, um, designed a pair of amazing cantilevered shoes, a picture of which we have in the book. Yes. And that makes total sense to me that an architect would make a shoe. Um, but then I, the, people know I wear, the people who know me know I wear ridiculous shoes because I'm so small. Um, but the shoes that I became really obsessed with in the book were a pair of Nikes and they really are the ugliest shoes you've ever seen. They're Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo's shoes from, uh, yes that's the cantilever here, and that's the neat Nike Regista from Cristiano Ronaldo which he wore at the last World Cup. And the reason I became obsessed with those shoes, I ended up ordering them on eBay for hundreds of pounds. Size nine, I'm a size four and a half. Um, football shoes um, and they have this integrated sock liner so you don't need to wear a sock and and which seems absurd and not that important except it is important because what it is about is about um, a, a simulating a bare skin touch so that your brain which is connected to your body which is connected to your boot and then is in touch with the ball there is this line of continuity seamless between those things. And although the, the ball was just a prosthesis, it was yes. an extension of your limb, which is how Ronaldo mm. plays. The mm. ball so naturally belongs to him. And that boot is engineered to permit that kind of touch. And if you ever see him move, he has this very rapid change of direction. The boot facilitates that. I mean, I'm sure he could do it anyway, but the boot assists him. Um, and it looks reptilian. It's sort of luminous and 
um, it has sort of a rippled skin. Uh, when, I, when it arrived, it was it's like an alien had landed in my house. Um, so yeah, I became really obsessed with the technology and the craftsmanship mm. and how all of those things, despite the fact we disrespect our shoes, are geared to facilitating the most astonishing human accomplishments. There are a lot of um, political undertones. The book, the book doesn't exactly uh, argue politically, but it gives a lot of food for thought politically, both the politics in this respect of sport and how that's related to certain sort of industries and problems of sweatshops and so forth. But also you have uh, you know, a lot of different gender, gender politics yes. undercurrents in the book. I, uh, that, that was a really deliberate decision because there, there are two kinds of politics I think that could, you could see in the book. One which is uh, about labour and sweatshops and I have a passage about Marx at the very beginning and about commodity fetishism mm. and why coats and of our clothes are sort of um, the kind of the embodiment of what Mark meant by commodity fetishism, you know, mm. the dress that has a flirtatious personality when you, know, you um, when you denude the worker of their identity in the making of the object, and the object takes on the personality, that is ob commodity fetishism. That is the swoosh on the Nike, mm. uh, the Nike trainer that tells you it has a life, mm. and the laborer doesn't because you've forgotten that you just have this beautiful object. So I talk about Marx at the beginning, um, and the end of the book reaches towards sweatshops um, uh, and the conditions of labor. And the reason it's not explicit, that part of the book, is because there are really terrific books about the conditions in which clothes are made. Mm. Lucy Siegel's To Die For is the one that may, I read about five, six years ago, and it makes you take your head into your hands. It talks to you about why... Remember that facetious line in The Devil Wears Prada about how, is it teal or a particular colour of blue is... Yes. You know, and everybody <laughs> loves that cerulean blue, right, has, has disseminated from the catwalk into your high street. And it, they never finish that story. It's mm. disseminated from the catwalk into the high street, but it's begun in rivers in Congo that, you know, the colours that we wear are dying mm. the rivers in places <coughs> very, very far mm. away mm. from us. If you're wearing jeans, then your jeans probably come from a particular part of India where the women, it's a matriarchal society, the women who are handling the indigo dye, their hands are blue from dealing with it. Their fertility myths have got wrapped up in, if you're pregnant, you're not allowed to swirl the dye. So there's, there's a whole kind of culture of you know, where our clothes come from, and I'm interested in that. And that work, that polemical work, is already out there. I think lots of us are talking about it and campaigning about fast fashion. I think we know what we have to do, mm. which is not just buy less and uh, mend, make do and mend. We need to challenge industry. But what I really wanted to do was write the book that made you think why you should care about your clothes in the first mm -hmm. place. I didn't want to tell you what you should do. I think women, particularly like me in my 20s, buy ferociously to fill some hole in their life. And I don't blame them for doing that. I don't think we should chastise young women in particular mm -hmm. for buying fast fashion. But we need to, I think we need to help people understand how meaningful clothes are. And I wanted to write a book where you would see clothes in all of culture and care about your clothes so that you might care then about the people who make it. Mm -hmm. So that's why the politics is subtle. It isn't supposed to smack you around the yes. head. Mm. It's supposed to make you change. I want you to open your wardrobe and think about some of the things mm -hmm. I've told yes. you about, to pick up your 
uh, I don't know, your jeans mm. and think that there are women whose mm. hands are blue and that jeans come from these other places. Um, so I, it was, it's, more, it's a more subtle politics. Well, I think there's exactly, and there's a sort yeah. of attentiveness to the conditions of our everyday life and that, that deepens our experience. It's, it's important. But you're more, more, more acerbic on the, on the gender and feminist politics. Yeah. And you have a truly powerful uh, chapter, I suppose it's the whole chapter, on the suit. I think there's, there's something about but on the male suit, yeah. which begins with a really devastating piece of glimpse of your autobiography. Yes. Yeah. That was one of the hardest bits yes. to write. Um, the, the memoir parts are still really hard to... I can't bring myself to look at them. I'm looking at my editor uh, at how hard it was to, mm. to write those memoir bits and to share them. But in the part that I... The book that I read, I didn't think you can talk about the life of clothes without talking about the life of the wearer. But in that section, I talk about entitlement, about some kind of male mm, entitlement. Yes. And the violence that comes with the suit, which is sometimes physical, but it is all sorts of other things too. I remember after um, one of the terrorist attacks recently, there was a picture of a girl in a veil. I don't talk about the hijab in my book, very deliberately too, but I remember the story about the girl in the hijab walking over the bridge, and there was a story about how unconcerned she seemed about the tragedy. And I remember someone tweeting that a woman in a hijab has done no harm to me, but men in suits have done so, many, so, so much damage to my life and culture, you know, the financial crisis. Um, and I do think that there is a certain kind of unquestionable authority that the suit sometimes represents. And in the language of the moment, a kind of toxic masculinity that is the suit enables, facilitates. So I talk about the violence of the suit, but it's more than just physical violence. Mm -hmm. It's a but also protection else. too. I mean, the Cary Grant yes. in North by Northwest is actually. In the, is it North by Northwest? Yes, yes. North by Northwest. Because yes. um, there's a lot of delight in your book. There's a lot of pleasure, <laughs> yes. delight, and 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 you're watching these films, many many different films, <laughs> including Glorious Ferrester dancing, Jim yes. Kelly dancing, and uh, and thinking about the way they look through their clothes, and um, and in the and the Cary Grant uh, passages. It's actually a form of, I mean, he had how many suits made? For, I mean, I the, it's the same least, suit. Yeah. It's the same suit. At least had to be made. Yes. Beverly Hills. So you tell the yeah. story. So it's, um, everybody knows the suit by, from North by Northwest because it's a, the single most famous suit in film history. And um, every time you watch an action film, if it's not a black suit, if it's that slightly gunmetal silver suit, it's echoing the suit in North by Northwest, <laughs> which is amazing. And it's a really unusual suit because the trousers have forward pleats, which are quite feminine. So it's a rather unusual take. But it, it, uh, the, the reason it was so interesting to me, that suit, is that it's an indomitable suit, right? He can duck under um, crop dusters and mm. hang from cliff tops and um, seduce women. And the suit is, you know, unscathed. <laughs> um, and that is... Um, but he had 10 of them made. And in fact, there is a particular scene where he takes it off in the hotel room and you can see the label. Um, and it says Quintana of Beverly Hills, which is a particular costume maker. Um, it, was but his, it was his tailor, no? It was his tailor. Yes. And he made everybody else in the film use his tailor too. So Martin Lando, who plays one of the henchmen, is wearing a suit made by his tailor, which I think is funny. But that story is sad too, because I say, you know, he, Grant writes this really amazing article in GQ in the late 60s about 
giving you advice. You want, if you're going to get advice about a seat you wanted from Cary Grant, so GQ commissioned him to write a piece, and he talks about um, how you should be careful that your cuff. You should always wear cufflinks, but be careful that your cufflinks don't scratch the enamel of your car or something like that. <laughs> Which I don't think is from all of us have, but certainly not the car that he had. Um, but his father had been a tailor's cutter, and that was so interesting to me because his father abandoned him as a child, and if you know the story. His father has it, had his mother put in an asylum and he thought she was dead for much of his adult, well, young life. And then he discovered, I think, in his 30s in an asylum. And so he has a very strange relationship to his father, who is a tailor's cutter. And yet he is this man who, if you close your eyes and think of him now, I bet you see him in a suit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. But did you, do you watch films um, for, only for research? Or are, you, <laughs> are you watching films... Because you do watch films really, really well. Oh, I mean, thank I, you. I'd seen um, you know, several of the films you mentioned, but I'd not seen the things you see in them. I think I was seeing them with my weird dress-based eyes. Um, well, I, but I'm like you like in that. I think we're um, rapacious. We like, we're magpies. We like all forms of culture. And it was really important to me to respect the, a, a film. So in the, be the beginning of the book, begins with sort of snippets, prologues, and I talk about Van Gogh's boots, which Heidegger writes about, very high culture. And then I talk about Madonna's jacket mm. in the uh, video for um, Borderline, which is my absolute favorite Madonna <laughs> video, and I watch that on loop, but I knew it off by heart anyway. I talk about her denim jacket, although lots of people love her jacket in Desperately Seeking Susan. I'm up to debate that. Um, but I wanted the low culture, low culture, popular culture there as well. Because I saw yes. part of the argument of the book is to say philosophy, certainly, the disciplinary, the rigid discipline that I sometimes try to belong to, pretends that it's not interested in clothes. And maybe academic studies pretends it's not interested in clothes because we're interested in the life of the mind and it seems superficial. And it seems to me, well, why is it that clothes are everywhere, in everything, in all forms of culture, not just because people are dressed, but in meaningful ways they're freighted with significance. And if they are meaningful in all forms of culture, why are we ignoring them? And how can I draw out their ubiquity and their significance to you. So I was watching attentively to draw those things out, but I, I don't think you watch films without your eye being jabbed by, you know, the um, the dress that um, I don't know Kate Blanchett is wearing in mm. Carol or something. You know, the fur coat that she wears. I, I, my eye is jabbed by that in the film, and I think it, it is, it's interesting that that's there. Mm. Why is it interesting? Mm. You also make the point actually. It's about halfway through the book in the section on animals, oh, yes. um, which I really sort of flashed up very strongly for me, which is that uh, it's sort of so obvious, I almost don't want to say it, but, but, but you discuss it so well, which is that it's a sign of the human. We are the only yes. animal species that wears clothes. Yeah. And also, we wear animal species. Yeah. We wear leather, we wear fur. So um, that's, that's in your section, a beautiful chapter on fur, feathers, and... It's, uh, do you want? I've got it. I marked it. If you don't know the page number, oh. Oh, oh. that is not a real pant. That is a. That is a. <laughs> that is a, 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 Someone gave it to me. It's oh. old currency from Lebanon. <laughs> it has no. It has. It, ha, it has no value, but of incredible beauty. Incredible beauty. Amazing yeah, it's page. Page two hundred seven. Two hundred seven. Um, yes, that, yes yeah. that, yeah. but, but how could we ever deny that we are entangled in animals, not least because we are dressed in them? 
being dressed is such an essentially human experience, even as we know that we enter this life naked. The philosopher Jacques Derrida laughingly describes undressing before his cat, catching its impassive eye and being overwhelmed by an embarrassing sense of their parity, his own nakedness juxtaposed to that of his naked pet. The anecdote recalls the S.E.S. Montaigne's famous philosophical cat conundrum posed in the Rye question, how can I tell if I am playing with my cat or my cat plays with me? Who knows the answer to that? Certainly no self-respecting cat owner. What comes of Derrida's encounter, though, is a dawning realisation that dressing is not only proper to, but a property of being human. With the exception of man, no animal has ever thought to dress itself, he observes. Dressing is like the utterance of speech or the exercise of reason, like laughing, mourning, history-telling and gift-giving. It distinguishes us amongst the kingdom of animals. Beautiful. Yes, wonderful. You know, you're right. That part of the book is obvious in a way, but unseen, which no. is what clothes are like, yes. I think. They are obvious but, and unseen. Uh, no, perfect. I didn't mean it no, as no, criticism No, no I know, I know. No, it's just that it's, it, it, it's something that I hadn't ever sort of really understood yes. this, and it needs more attention which you're giving it because this adornment, this idea of adornment, but the adornment it, which is for many, many purposes, for this one's place in the world, for, for one's impact, for um, you know, attracting other people and so forth, but it also has this um, f facet which you have, you do look at, which is that it is often used to constrain. Yeah. That there are, I mean, you don't go into the history of the corset, you mention it, but, but, but this, this, and you talk about high heels. Yeah. So what do you think the psychology of constraint is that uh, sort of dominates so much of high fashion in particular? Yes, yeah. Um, I do talk about, um, I mean, this is a funny thing to talk about because corset historians have increasingly come out saying the corset was not repressive, the corset was structuring you and... Um, there's something slightly kind of facile about the corset being oppressive, but it seems to me that so much of women's wear, the history of women's wear, has been inimical, inimical to the well-being of women themselves. Mm. Not just the things that they wear, but also the way that they're made. So I talk about the arsenic dye. Mm. Um, uh, uh, there's a sketch by Tenniel who's... Um, you'll, you'll know him from uh, the Alice in Wonderland illustrations, and he has a sketch called The Haunted Lady Looking in the Mirror, mirror Looking Glass, which is an echo of Alice, obviously, as well, I think. And it's a, um, a, a very thin, reedy young woman in a corseted dress and a billowing skirt, gazing into the mirror. And in the mirror, you can see her reflection, and behind her, another young woman collapsed and that is Marianne Walkley, who was a real person. She was a dressmaker who had f been working something like 27 hours straight, um, and she collapsed. And Marx writes about her in Capital, about the conditions of labour in which dresses are made. So uh, I write about this perversity that women's wear has peculiarly so often been inimical to their well-being. And in shoes in particular, mm. I became... So much of the book is about clothes as metaphors and how we're, they're both metaphors for certain parts of our experience but also the material conditions in which we exist and so I talk about how shoes women's shoes are there's a history of constraint um, and discomfort hobbling, hobbling, hobbling. Um, 
Uh, I mean, I wear ridiculous shoes, so I know like, how gravity wedges throw your weight forward in this absurd way. Mm. Uh, and I talk about how the language of liberation is connected to mobility. The glass ceilings that we break through, the ladders we try to climb, the, the kitchens we leave behind, that mobility is a feminist issue and that the shoe is both a metaphor for that constraint mm. and a real part of the conditions of women's lives. Um, and there aren't any easy answers, I don't, I don't think. I'm still... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wearing those ridiculous shoes, um, because I love them. I know partly I wear them because I'm so small and I can try to get some leverage. If I talk to you later, you'll see, I'll try and position myself in a particular way so that we have a, a, a level gaze. I'll never be able to look straight into your eyes, but I'll try to. And I'm constantly negotiating my spaces because I'm small. But I think women often mm. are constantly, sometimes unconsciously, negotiating their spaces. And that embodied experience was something I wanted the book to say. You sound in the book, though, as if you used to run. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, Nobody ever believes me, but I was an athlete I as a child. I, I believe you. <laughs> it's very convincing in the book. I, well, the, well, people keep asking, what's your favorite item? What's your favorite garment? And I think they think I'm going to say some magnificent dress. And then I say it's the Nike Magista boots. But also that chapter begins with me being about 13, 12 or 13 at school and having a new gym teacher, and I was running, and it was, I still think it was one of the crowning moments of my life, where the teacher just collared me. She just took me aside after the class, and she saw something, because I, I was really small and light, um, and if you have a low center of gravity sometimes, and you have a small frame, you can run like the wind, and I could when I was 12 or 13. I can't anymore, but I could when I was 12 or 13. I was a really good sprinter, and I remember she there was that moment of recognition when somebody sees that you have something in you, some potential. And she put a pair of spikes on my shoes, and they were awful spikes, like in the school collection. They were blunt, not particularly good. But spikes are really light. They have a technology. They're light, and they, um, they give you um, the friction you need to be able to spring from the earth. And she made me run in the spikes. And I remember it was the fastest I'd ever run in my life. And I can still remember how exhilarating it felt to feel the wind be behind me and leaving the other kids miles behind. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes when I talk to athletes uh, people who, or people who, who play sports, 
I can see it in their eyes too, that moment where some piece of equipment, a shoe, a vest, facilitates this most astonishing, it, it, it enables something deep inside you. Yes. And yeah. I think that the argument of continuity between the actual thing and a state of being um, comes through very well, but also in psychological states like reinventing yourself in a different totally different shape. Yeah. So this is, as it were, finding your natural uh, physical ability. But there are also lots of clothes in your book, lots of dresses in the book, that are ways of actually projecting a completely different self, particularly Alexander McQueen's work. Yes. I mean, and you comment on that and his, and his sort of cruelty and his sadomasochism and the, and the way that the women's bodies are encased and cut, you know, choked and all yeah. kinds of things of that sort. Yeah. I think people find him so difficult for that, those reasons. Um, I don't talk about a great many designers in the book, because no. it is a book about clothes rather than fashion per se. I talk about Yoji Yamamoto, because the best fashion film ever is the Vim Vendors film, um, Notebooks and Clothes and Cities, about Yoji Yamamoto. It's much better than The Devil Wears Prada. Um, uh, but I talk about McQueen, and he comes up again and again, because yes. he's yeah. so clever. He's so intelligent. I think of him as a thinker, the ways that he identifies the relationship between women and birds in particular. But I also see that the cruelty in the ways that he contorts women and stages them. And I see by the same token or in the same stroke, I see how, how deeply, how profoundly he identifies with them. He sees them, he presents them as victims because he sees them as vulnerable. And then he does something perverse and awful and sort of astonishing too, which is he says that victimhood could turn, that you, I, so I, one of the thing, one of the most painful lines to write in the book was, he, so he talks about his, seeing his sister beaten by the same man who then abused him too and how he wants to make women look strong, even though they look like they've been victimized. But one of the most difficult things for me to realize, looking at his work and thinking about him, was that I think one of the things he's saying is that if you have been subject to violence or a victim in some way, then one of the strange things, difficult things you can do, is that you can say that there is nothing anybody could do to me that is worse than what I do to myself, which is what I think he tries to do. He says, a woman wears this dress, she does this to herself, because there's nothing worse that anybody can do to her than she does to herself. And he takes that as a kind of empowerment, which is perverse and terrible, but also sort of blindingly brilliant too. He has this dress, which is in the book, this bronze and gold sort of metallic dress, lace, and it looks like a woman, it looks like it's just been caught on the edge of a candle, but it's burning, it's just burnt. And it's absolutely vulnerable and delicate and just astonishingly beautiful, too. Mm. Yeah. I have very mixed feelings about McQueen. Lots of people do. Yes. Um, I mean, I suppose his own biography gets, sort of does get mixed up in, into the clothes. But on the point of, I mean, the sort of psychoanalytical elements of these, um, of these thoughts about his fashions, um, there are, um, you gesture towards such analysis every now and then. So there's a little bit about shoes and the famous, and there's fur, uh, Freud on fur. <laughs> um, but there's, there's also about this, this idea of, how, of the masquerade, which I yes. think in a way is the more interesting psychoanalytic point of, of how 
we dress in relation to others. We, we produce ourselves. Yeah. Um, do, do, please say some more about that. I don't know that I can say any better than you or you <laughs> have. Um, I do I talk about, some of it is, a, uh, some of the time I'm reading philosophy and saying, look, all those years that people said to me philosophy or psychoanalysis was about this, um, but serious stuff, it's not about clothes. I'm reading that stuff and saying, no, look, there is a way in which you can think about clothes through this lens. And also there's a way in which clothes, and particularly women's experience of clothes, might illuminate this philosophy in a more dynamic or un unusual way. It might cast it in a different way. And with Freud, I was thinking about screen memories because the screen is, I think he thinks as a projector, doesn't he? But I think I say it could also be a textile, and I talk about um, the fabrication of mm. memory, of childhood memory, how you fabricate things. Um, there's a section in the introduction where I talk about how sometimes we're, we're looking to present ourselves in a particular way to other people, and there can be no guarantee that we will be understood or we'll be successful in being able to do that. But there are things that we are saying or betraying nonetheless. That struck me as deeply psychoanalytical, of course, in, in certain ways, um, but also really true. I don't think you need psychoanalysis to understand that. We betray ourselves constantly in the things that we wear. We might think that we're a particular kind of person, that we're in we, we, we might be in control of what we say, but we're not, we're not, we aren't always. And the inverse of that too, that like, this was a really important part of the book, and I think a different part of the book to other books about dress. I also, I didn't want to say clothes are about identity. That seems to me too banal, too obvious, that what we are could be somehow expressed, the sum of what we are could be expressed in a Ramones t-shirt, for instance. It seems so absurd that identity could be expressed so easily, so glibly. And it seems to me one of the things that we are is hiding, that everything, sometimes, maybe the thing that we are is the thing that we don't want to disclose, not even to ourselves. The thing that our clothes don't say, that we are constantly hiding in our clothes too. I know that's the case with me, that I'm not sure that these clothes are me. We're always looking for the thing that suits you, but I'm not sure that anything will ever suit me. Mm. I'm not sure I want you to see who I am. You but remember, it's interesting to me that I want to try and present myself somewhere. Yeah, yes. I mean, I remember, it's sort of slightly faded with, with age in my case, but I remember the sort of dreadful agonies of awkwardness when you think you're, you're dressed yes. properly for a party yes. or for an occasion. And then you look at yourself in the mirror for the last time and you realize it's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then you tear everything out yes. of your wardrobe and try and, and somehow that's because there's a mismatch yes. between yes. The, the image you thought you were going to be Precisely able to create. So. There's um, the Virginia Woolf story I mentioned, yes. um, mm. A New Dress, which is sort of one of the adjacent <laughs> stories to Mrs. Dalloway. And Mabel, poor Mabel. Mm. Mabel is exactly that. Mm. We've all been Mabel. We're Mabel... Is not, Mabel is not beautiful or rich, and she's not young anymore, but she's been invited to Mrs. Dalloway's party. And it's this big moment in her social calendar, but she doesn't want to let on quite how big it is. But she plans for it meticulously and well in advance, and she commissions this dress. And I think it's in a yellow lace. Um, and even as she's describing it, you know she's making a terrible mistake. <laughs> so it has a high collar and a waist in the 20, uh, the 30s, 20s, but it should be um, a dropped waist. Um, but she spends all her money on it. And then she has that moment where she goes to the party 
and instantly she knows she's wearing the wrong thing. And you don't know if it's true. Maybe nobody else casted, no. cast Mabel, but she thinks it is, and she sort of shrinks, and that horror just sinks that she's wearing the wrong thing. And that made me think, well, what is the right thing? And there's a passage from the French philosopher Sixou who talks about wearing Sonia Riquel and the dress. She says the perfect dress is like water. It's like stepping into water. It envelops you and it has a certain transparency and that you will shine through the dress. And I sort of think, how dare she found that dress? And that we're all looking for that dress where mm. that will be perfectly kind and just and true and mm. transparent, mm. not literally transparent. But there's also the question of disguise, isn't there? This, I mean, the suit, well, your passage is on the suit. Uh, it, we present the suit as a form of, yes, of, of disguise. I mean, the, yeah. the, it, because it's architecture, women wearing suits yeah. are, are presenting themselves in a way to fit into some aspect of the world yeah. as perceived. Well, I talk, it's a sort of yeah. fancy dress almost. A yeah. Woman, a, a, I mean, even the trouser suit you talk about. Yeah. It's a sort of, almost a fancy dress. I don't spend enough time talking about women in suits. I wish I'd talked more. <laughs> but my, largely because I spend so much time talking about dresses. But the, um, I talk about um, Janelle Monet. I love Janelle Monet. And Janelle Monet wears, that's her uniform of choice. She wears tuxedos with embellished lapels and satin cuffs. And um, if you've ever seen um, the music video to. Uh, make me feel, which is the best song in the world after Borderline. Um, she's flirting with her girlfriend, and she's flirting with her girlfriend and a potential boyfriend. She's wearing various suits, and she's—I I mean, the easy way to say is that she's queering the suit. But what does that mean? I think it's not that a woman is claiming the suit in order to be a man. I think sometimes women wear the suit to claim their own authority to to puncture the authority of the suit, to try and articulate it differently. And I also think that masculinity doesn't come out of that encounter unscathed. That masculinity is being challenged too. Yes, yes. Yeah, so her suits are amazing. Well, I think we might turn it over to the audience. I think there is a microphone. You yes. <laughs> okay. I was just um, going off what you'd said about Janelle Monet in suits, because I... Oh. At the top, okay, because I love her as well. but. Um, do you have any opinions on what Billy Porter has said recently about men wearing dresses? Yeah, I don't, I don't have an opinion on Billy Porter's dress at the Met Ball, although it was a suit and then a, it was this incredible hybrid thing. But I feel exactly like Meryl Streep, if you saw the picture of Meryl Streep, just takes a double take when she sees him. I feel like that. But it is funny, isn't it, that that hasn't caught on in the same way. I, the one thing that, that, there are lots of things that aren't in the book. I sort of mentioned the hijab and particular reasons why I didn't want to talk about that. It seems that it's over, over-determined in part of the public discourse. And I didn't talk about trans identity and, um, uh, and, and dressing as men or women, if that's not your assigned gender at birth. And that seemed to me, I think all of us have an obligation to think about that, not just if you're someone who identifies as trans or not. I think it's part of our responsibility. But I didn't have anything specific to say on it. I didn't want to highlight it as an issue either. I wanted, there's a line in the book at the beginning where I say, this is for, this is not just a book for women, it's a book for men and women and for anybody for whom those easy categories don't fit. And so much of the book is about that feeling of not fitting or trying to fit and finding the misfit, as it were. Um, I wanted to write about not having that easy relationship with our clothes and without pinpointing any particular political issues. So I don't have 
thoughts on Billy Porter other than he's amazing. But it does seem to me interesting that it hasn't caught on in quite the same way. Yeah. If that's a sufficient answer. I had another idea and then it percolated and went. It'll come back. <laughs> I was thinking you were talking about constriction in clothing. I was wondering if you had anything to say about the clothing that some people put impose on others so i'm thinking at one end of the scale you have sort of the old workhouse uniform guantanamo bay i mean yeah. I, that orange suit is something that's seared on my mind but also yeah. even things like the hospital gown you know sort of uniforms those kinds of clothing yeah i mean i was wondering if you had any thoughts on the power dynamics involved in obliging one person to wear something of your yeah. choosing I mean, all of the book is about that, in a way, of, about how oppressive gazes are, but also how oppressive clothes are. What it feels like to be... Um, Guantanamo Bay is a, a really harrowing example, and you can immediately see the suit. Um, and, but also on a more kind of mundane level, like if you, if you ever worked in a shop or in an office and you had to wear this shapeless... The, 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 I mean, I know that's not the same thing, but the, the discomfort of being made to parade, present yourself in a way that's so at odds with what you are. And I write about that discomfort, definitely. I think I, yeah, maybe I could have written more about the violence of that. But I think, and in certain situations, of course, like the one you're talking about, uh, and the oppressive imposition of the hijab in places and the veil, that's more than not just being comfortable in your skin. That, that is an infringement of rights, too. But it seemed to me that's why you should write a book about dress or you should read a book about dress. That so often we think that to be concerned with dress is to be somehow distracted by something superficial or vain. And yet so many of our most serious political and moral concerns about freedom, about gender, are articulated in dress or through dress. And I wanted to try and give some, provide some of the resources to start thinking intelligently about those things. Yeah. That was quite wonderful. Forgive me, Shahida, I haven't read your book yet, but that I think is, I have an excuse. I have the black and white version, which you told me not to <laughs> no, read. No, don't read, read right. the color. Okay. <laughs> okay. I wondered if you'd talk at all about aging and dress, yeah. because I'm having this memory of Marina, I think you were going in to give a Hilda Hume lecture, and we was, I was introducing you, and we were standing in front of the mirror talking about length of hair as we got older. This is a joke, because it was about 20 years ago, but we were already having this conversation. And we both said, almost in unison, wait a minute, we make the rules. That's the point of being a feminist. <laughs> Yeah. But I don't think we totally believe that. And I was brought up by a mother who would regularly say, when she was also still very young, what is most important is you never look like mutton dressed up as oh. lamb. <laughs> right? That's the, so there is a real sexual disparity between men and women on this, because men aren't expected to change the length of their hair yeah. or the way they dress as they get older. But women really um, are, and I wondered what you yeah. had to say yeah. about that. No, I, uh, I don't write um, at length about that, but I do talk about um, the, the tract by Zoe Moss. Do you, remember, do you know that tract? It's, um, I think it's from the 1970s, and it's called, uh, I mean, it's so, so it's, a, it's, it's a feminist, it's a really vigorous feminist tract for the ageing woman, and it's called 
it hurts, uh, it hurts to be alive and obsolete. She says the aging woman is supposed to fulfill her small function and vanish. And she gets furious about that experience, that as though your sex is a, a void in the street as you walk through it. Um, so I talk about that. And I talk about uh, Simone de Beauvoir uh, talking about young women, as an older woman talking about young women, and how young women are caught between the compulsion to screen themselves from being scrutinized and also to, to, to display, and how that is an kind of exemplary experience of femininity. So yeah, I talk about those two examples. In um, the culture that my mother comes from, you, you show less belly probably in your sari, but you, your colour palette changes, it dims. So you stop wearing fuchsia pinks or bronzes, mm. you start to wear creams and whites, mm. um, which it feels sort of almost funereal, like you're, it's kind of odd. Um, but it was interesting to me that the colour palette has to change with your age. And my mother's very conscious of that. Um, and at the same time, I know she has the most awful sense of colour. Like, if something is a really angry mustard orange, she wants it. Like, that's <laughs> impulsively the thing she wants. And I sort of trying to be encouraging her to buy, buy the thing you want and wear the thing you want. Who are you pleasing in those moments? Yeah. But the Zoe Moss tract is one of the most remarkable things I read about ageing. Fascinating ah. talk. Absolutely. And very interesting. And I was just thinking if discussing men's suits from a male perspective, whether you think of an equivalent garment worn by women, for instance, perhaps the power of the miniskirt to bring down governments. Yeah, no, yeah. Have you been to the Mary Quant show at the v &A? Yeah. Um, did the miniskirt bring down governments? Um, <laughs> um, Let's try it. Well, Let's all try anything. it tomorrow. It's worth trying anything at this, at this uh, if Boris Johnson does become Prime Minister, I mean, that is a surefire way to get his attention, to fell him, isn't it? To women, um, probably in miniskirts. Uh, in the Mary Quant show, which is on at the V&A at the moment, it's so much fun. I thought it would just be fun, but it's actually really thoughtful as well. There's lots of mums and daughters wandering around, the mums going, oh, I used to have those, and the daughters going, sort of begrudgingly going, that's actually quite stylish, um, <laughs> which is true. And in fact, when I was on the coming on in the, on the tube today, because I'm so distracted by clothes, there's a girl in a, a kind of a quite an expensive satin that's not shiny, but is a slightly textured, but it's so smooth, and it was... Green, it's a halter neck in the Mary, Mary Quant has a, a stripy halter neck dress in that show and she had a version of it and she wouldn't have realised it was Mary Quant but it was green and white so she looked like a long squirt of toothpaste, minty toothpaste <laughs> it was really beautiful um, uh, but it was the Mary Quant dress but Mary Quant the, 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 the curators have had a sort of an, a, an issue they're always um, caught up in this debate about whether Mary Quant invented the miniskirt, and she didn't invent the miniskirt, somebody else did. It was a man, annoyingly. But she popularised it. Yes. Um, mm. And that seems to me enough. And mm. one of the curious things I found out about Mary Quant um, when thinking about that exhibition recently was that there is an idea that that radical culture comes about as a direct response <coughs> to the restraint and the... Uh, the constraints mm. of, of the war, but also that she was a child evacuee and that if you are that generation of young people who are parted from their parents and forced to be resourceful, to fend for themselves, I talk about children fending mm. for themselves in the chapter about bags, but if you're a child evacuee like that, then 
one of the outcomes of that, you might be a generation that is that much more daring and self-sufficient. And there is an, a whole idea that the Mary Quant collection, her, her innovative business models and, and, the, and the work she was making is a sort of product of that experience of being forced to fend for yourself and having daring, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. I first saw Mary Quant herself in the street um, wearing her, one of her geometric short dresses outside the Establishment Club, which was the club that Peter Cook and Dudley Moore started, which was full of you know, extraordinarily subversive, uh, completely what not wouldn't be allowed now, I mean, very, very unbuttoned criticism. Really? Yes, and satire. So you're completely right. The two were absolutely symbiotically the, re the rebellion against the Establishment. Yeah. It was a joke calling the Night Club the Establishment. Yeah. And, um, and, and the clothes. Yeah. It was part of a... But yes, revolution, really. You were hanging out with the best people. No, I wasn't hanging out. I wasn't hanging out. <laughs> I, I just saw you. her. No, 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 I wasn't. You no, were, I'm sure no, you no, were. No, no, I wasn't. <laughs> anyway, is there another question, or if not, we... Yes, there's another one. Oh, oh, good, okay. I love the book, um, particularly the chapter about bags. Um, oh, yeah. But there's one character I'd like to re redeem. When you're talking about Jeeves, there's a character whose name I can't remember. Who doesn't get up, who, who wears his pajamas till late in the afternoon? Yeah. And if he does dress at all, gets oh, into yeah. a holy jumper. And I, I, I just wondered if you, he's not the hero of your book, but I wondered if you'd just say a little bit about that experience of wearing clothes, <laughs> oh, it, where you, the yeah. clothes you, you don't perform in, they're not display, you just slob around in them. That is, it's not Pongo Twistleton. Pongo <laughs> Twistleton has the party that Jeeves is really concerned about dressing for. But it is, oh, I know, it's Gussie Finknottle, isn't it? And actually, it's so interesting you mentioned you, because Marina's got a personal con connection, yes. don't you? It's so funny. Um, it's Because I, <laughs> I talk about, that, that section, it, I, it was intended to be amusing, and you're right, he's sort of indolent, and he likes to spend his time, he's so, would have so funny, isn't he? He says that Gussie likes to spend his time lounging around his pyjamas, but also watching worms. Just watching worms. <laughs> um, and I, just to answer your question before I go into Marina's thing, but I remember talking with Francis Corner, who's the head of the London College of Fashion, one of the most stylish people you ever meet. And I remember we were in a debate together, and she said, somebody asked her, what do you like to wear at home? And she said, she wears Yoji Yamamoto religiously, she's incredibly stylish. And she said, um, almost unthinkingly, she said a onesie. And I was just really <laughs> bewildered about it. And Private Eye did a sketch a caricature of me a couple of months ago writing my book, Dr. Shahid Bari, Stress the Secret Life of Clothes. And the, the cartoonist had done me in my pajamas with a towel on my head and uh, like discarded bits of biscuit and cups of tea around, which is actually how I wrote my book. And I was like, how did he get a long lens into my window? So I, I have a lot of time for the stuff that you lounge in. And also my husband, who I think you met maybe, is the sort of person that, who um, is really good at lounging. Like, I think you can be the sort of person who's really good <laughs> at finding the thing that just makes... So when we, he first um, got together, I remember he found a pair of my leg warmers and he put them on as slippers and he just wore them. He's like six foot five, I'm four foot 11. And he wore my leg warmers. He was just so comfortable in my leg warmers. And I remember that some people are really are content in their skin and in their clothes and have a natural talent 
for making themselves at ease. But the, the Jeeves connection is that I talk, this is more sober, I talk about the comedy of the relationship between Jeeves and Worcester, but also that um, mm. Percy Jeeves, uh, Jeeves is based on a real-life cricketer called Percy Jeeves. Um, I didn't know this, by the way. Oh, no. well, well it's, an, it's an incredible story, because the stories feel so bucolic. Um, English country green, village greens, cricket, except that, the, and the war doesn't happen in the stories. And Percy Jeeves was killed uh, at war. And it, so I think there's something really sort of plungent and moving about the fact this really profound, profound and tender relationship between these two men, Jeeves and Worcester, which is predicated on one caring for the other's clothes, Jeeves is a valet, is that the name comes from this, this cricketer. And your grandfather? Yes, picked him for the, was going to pick him for the England team. Yeah. But he, he died before he was picked, yeah. before he could play. Yeah, um, it's a remarkable but story. But actually, it's, it's also because my grandfather's uh, nickname was Plum, which yes. is the same nickname as Woodhouse. Right. So that's how the yeah. connection was built up. Did your grandfather invent cricket? Somebody said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I think we'll, leave, we'll set this conversation aside. <laughs> we'll go to... We'll go to there's a question yes, over There's here. another question there, yes. Um, I was just wondering... Um, you talk about the sort of signalling of clothing and um, I think especially, I don't know if it's covered in this way in the book, but it seems like especially for women, you know, every outfit is some sort of message. And I was just wondering whether you think that women will ever be able to escape that dialogue and whether they need to. And I suppose, you know, at the moment, the, the high street maybe plays on that sort of ferocious language that we have and maybe insecurity that we have to kind of wear the right thing at the right time. Yeah. And I was wondering if you think that will ever kind of grow out of that and, and if we need to. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I can answer that question, but I, I, but I entirely understand what you're saying and I, I try to articulate that experience, that enormous and oft, sort of almost unconscious burden that at any given moment a woman is being assessed for her appearance, for her anatomy, for what she's wearing. Um, I sort of, I have this uh, a, a vague thought that maybe what we really are in our most private moments, is the thing that we don't wear. It's the thing that we don't give away in what we wear. And that that burden of being constantly scrutinized is erosive and hard, but also it is the exemplary experience of being a woman. And actually this connects to your question about trans identity. It seems to me so much of the experience of being a woman is about the experience of failing to be a woman, failing to be thin enough or beautiful enough or fertile enough or maternal enough or fashionable enough, that to the point that I start to think that failure is what it means to be a woman. And somehow every day, we clothe this body and go out into the world with it. And I know the book is for men too, and men love clothes too. People say that to me all the time, and I say, yes, I write about men in clothes, but I do think that the nature of women's bodies and women's experience means that we have a very particular experience with our clothes. And it also enables us, I think that it means we can have a kind of out-of-body experience, that we're not just being looked at, we're seeing ourselves being looked at. And the moment you know, when you look in the mirror just before you leave your house and you adjust your dress, or you fix your, I should, I should have fixed my hair before I got here, you know. Those moments where you pause and have a second thought, am I, is this top too low? Will I have to pull this skirt down? Women have that all the time, right? But that moment where you see yourself outside of yourself is an ethical moment. It's mm -hmm. the moment where you can have an, 
you, and the kindness that you can't extend to yourself in those moments, when you're really hard on yourself, I think you can extend that kindness to others. And I think women have that facility in a particular way. Yes, well, I think that, you know, there's the, the, this personal investment in the book that you have, you know, this sort of sensitivity to states of being. It's really, I mean, it came through in that last reply. And um, I think, anyway, we'll all thank you very, very Not much for a wonderful book a and thrill. a wonderful talking to you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.